This is a podcast from ABC Overnights. Here's Trevor Chappell. Dan Eddy is the author of A Football Genius, the Peter Hudson story, joining us on the program this morning. Hello, Dan. Hey, Trev. How are you, mate? I'm pretty good. Look, there's been a lot of talk at the moment about Buddy Franklin and his incredible efforts kicking a 1,000 goals. And if we take a look at recent players like Dunstall and Lockett and Franklin, how does Peter Hudson compare to those? Well, yeah, um, you'd be happy to have any of them in your team. But uh, certainly uh, Buddy ventures a bit further out of the goal square than Pete did. I can give you that much. But, yep. uh, and, and Lockett and Dunstall, to be fair. Um, their styles were very different. Um, Pete was a really um, – he, he hunched right over the ball and he uh, – to, to, to minimise the, the drop, zone between the hand and the foot and uh, which can affect the way that uh, the the weather um, can influence your kick um, and buddy obviously has the big arc when he's when he's coming in to kick for goal as well whereas Pete was just a few steps and straight in but the big difference with Pete and most other goal kickers is the flat punt which uh, he Pete preferred that to a drop punt or a torpedo or or the, the kick that pretty much any other full forward uses, um, and he believed that the the sweet the sweet spot under the ball uh, it gave him more more connection. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever tried kicking a flat punt, but uh, it's not the easiest kick to do. But somehow he was able to master it so that it went through more often than not. He didn't kick thousand goals in the VFL, but that doesn't make him one of the great not to be recognised as one of the great goal kickers, though. Oh, definitely not. No, he well, he suffered a knee injury when he was he just turned twenty six, and so he's in the prime of his career. And he has a knee injury, which pretty much stops him playing VFL for the best part of four years. I think he plays three games in in four years. So uh, at that point, he'd kicked four centuries in a row, including. 146 in the 1950 season and then 150 in the nine, uh, in the 1970 season, sorry, and then 150 in the 1971 season. So to do his knee in the first game of 1972, you look at his track record and you think, well, yeah, if he doesn't do his knee, maybe he gets those extra 200 and... Uh, two hundred odd goals to get to the to get to the 1,000 in his career. And... Um, Overall, his his record is still the best in in league history. Five point six four goals per game. Which, um, if his if his career had have continued and he didn't do his knee, we worked out that he would have kicked uh, somewhere around eighteen hundred goals in his career if he'd been able to maintain that average over uh, those next four seasons. So it's pretty pretty amazing uh, record when you compare it in that sense. And a knee injury in that era of football would have been far worse in a lot of ways than a knee injury now. It was. I mean, it ended John Coleman's career. At, again, he was 25 and, and he does his knee and uh, he dislocated a knee, but uh, they they didn't know how to treat it back then. Um, and then Pete does his knee in 1972. And again, uh, the treatment wasn't quite what it is today. So, uh, in fact, Pete, they basically left it to heal Um he he torn the anterior cruciate, but the, um, they left it to heal. And uh, in that time, he got a job offer to go into a pub in in Hobart. And um, so football 
almost become secondary for a while there and he, he focused on his career. So he never actually got it properly treated until um, oh, probably 18 months or more later when he finally decided he needed to have an operation. Uh, and and that's when he was able to return to football and kick a bag more goals. But uh, there was no rush to get it fixed. And if he had have got it fixed straight away, if they were able to work out exactly how to do it, um, he uh, he might have returned much, much earlier. How did his football career start? Where did it all begin? Uh, grew, he began in uh, New Norfolk in Tasmania and um, his, his family home was literally backed onto the New Norfolk footy ground, Boyer Oval. So uh, that was his backyard for many, or well, his, his entire childhood. So he, he spent hours there after school and on weekends just kicking with mates, uh, it could get pretty windy down there, so he learned how to uh, kick uh, with the elements and, and work out how to manoeuvre the ball in that sense, and he'd also kick the ball out on the ground and, and watch how it bounced and just kick it time and time again and see when it hit the ground which way it would bounce certain directions, and that, that helped him later on. It really taught him how to read the ball, and that was one of the real keys to his game, which he developed as a kid, was that ability to, to read the flight of the ball better than his opponent, which gave him that split-second advantage over a full-back uh, and meant that time and time again he was able to mark on his chest or, or read the flight so well and gather off the ground and run into an open goal. Was he a big kid? Yeah, he was. He was tall, yeah. His, his dad was a big man as well, and um, so he was always um, tall for his age. It doesn't mean that he, they put him in the ruck. I know I was... A, tall kid and I was thrown in the ruck and I was, I was no good, but Pete wasn't thrown in the ruck. He was always, a, I guess you could say, a natural goal kicker. He just loved kicking goals. He, he admired Coleman and he admired all the full forwards and uh, particularly in Tassie, there wasn't a lot of TV of the VFL back in those days, so your Tassie guys were your heroes. But So he was always um, really keen on kicking goals and, uh, yeah, from, from the moment he started playing footy, uh, he seemed to be able to do that better than anyone else. Hello, Ray. Oh, good morning. Peter Hudson was a terrific, great player. He was kept goalless one day only in the full, full career. And that was by a number 17 for Richmond, Barry Richardson. Mm. In, in his heydays, I think Hudson kicked three points that day, but never kicked the goal. Did that happen whenever he played against Barry Richardson, or was it just that one occasion? No, just the one, just the one off, because uh, Hudson, you know, all his career always scored goals, but this particular day must have been an off day, and Barry, Barry beat him because um, he only kicked three points that day. So, well, you're a Richmond supporter. That's why you remember it so well, right? I'm a Bulldog supporter. Oh. Bulldog Ray. <laughs> Bulldog Ray, but I, I was a schoolmate of Barry's when he was in Wodonga, and then he went to St. Pat's in Ballarat. But he was a very good footballer. He kicked the football. 60 metres left or right foot. Nice work. Are you, are you aware of that game as well, Dan? Yeah, I mean, Ray's spot on. It's the first uh, it's the first time. Peter, overall, 356 games at all different levels of senior footy at, in Tassie and Victoria and Hawthorne and you name it, Glenorchy. And um, 356 games, and it's five times in his career when he walked off the field without a goal. And the first time was Barry Richardson. And so that's his seventh season of senior footy, Peter, before he actually got stopped. And there's a funny story around that. Firstly, Barry had 
have worked out that Pete liked to um, drift back into the goal square and, and get a lot of goals over the back. So he actually played him from behind so that uh, Pete couldn't run back and have an open square. So that was Barry's tactic and it worked really well. And I interviewed Barry for the book. And um, there's a funny story, though, after that, Many years later, Barry was up on the Mita Mita River fishing and he went went into the pub there and he's sitting at the bar and there's one bloke at the other end of the bar and um, the bar, the guy's staring him up and down and, and Barry's thinking, oh, I'm not, not sure what's going to happen here. And the guy comes over and he says, it's you. I went all the way to the MCG in 1969 to see the great Peter Hudson. I didn't go to see you. So Barry tells that story to uh, uh, a lot today. It's just, uh, it, it grew legs of its own. We're taking a look at the life of Peter Hudson this morning. How did he come to the attention of Hawthorne? Well, he came to the attention of pretty much everyone, pretty much every club, to be honest. Uh, there, it was like a revolving door at the family home for, oh, for weeks and months, really. And uh, at, at first, it looked like he was going to Essendon. There was a really diehard Essendon supporter in Tasmania who knew the Hudson family and He'd, he'd made the connection and John Coleman came down. He was coach at the time. He came down and saw Pete and, um, and Pete went over and saw the club and, um, he looked certain to go. He was a Coleman fan. So it was an exciting prospect. Um, but then South Melbourne came on the scene and, and South appealed to him a bit more. Again, the, the club flew him over. Um, they, he met Bob Skilton and all those ones and he felt really comfortable at South and he, he was very close to signing, but his dad said, hold off, hold off. We'll just, there's no rush. We'll see what else comes up. And uh, that's when Hawthorne swooped and Ron Cook was the secretary at the time. And he worked feverishly back back and forward via phone calls, uh, many flights to and from Tassie. Uh, it was a real on-again, off-again saga trying to get Peter to, to sign with Hawthorne. And he, he chooses Hawthorne because he turns up and he just felt this real connection with the club. It, everyone says it's a family club, and, that, and that's what Peter felt when he got there. Your David Parkins and your Peter Crimmins and these guys, they really um, they warmed to him and he warmed to them. And So that's why eventually he, he chose Hawthorne, and once he chose someone, uh, he was very loyal. So the Hawks were always going to win after that. What was Hawthorne like at that time? Well, they were in the middle of a... <laughs> they won their first premiership in 1961 after many, many years of trying. Um, but then they'd fallen away again and they'd claimed the wooden spoon, which they'd done numerous times over the journey. Uh, they did that again in 1965. So they were starting from the bottom. And Pete, Pete liked that. He liked the thought of working together with a group of people to try and build up a successful team. So Pete comes in. Peter Crimmins had got there the year before. Bob Keddy was there. Um, and then they bring in Lee Matthews, Don Scott, Peter Knights. All these guys start to come in and... Um, by 1971, they're, uh, they're a real force in football and, uh, and Pete just loved being part of that rebuild period and then uh, it really sets the Hawks on their way from thereafter. It's interesting because it's not because a young player... Oh, how old was he at this time, by the way? He, he arrived, he was 20, 21 when he played his first game for the Hawks. So he was, a, I guess you'd say today, a mature recruit. Yeah. There was a few like that, I know. Uh, I think Daryl Baldock, the other Tassie legend, he he uh, came across about a similar age. Polly Farmer was that sort of mature age. So was Alex Jezelenko. So some of those interstate recruits had already played a bit of senior football before they get to the VFL. 
It's interesting when you say that, though, because it was the case, because I know with Polypharma and with people that were coming across from Western Australia and playing VFL, they were established players by the time they were getting picked up in other states. Yeah, and it's an interesting argument with today, isn't it, that we saw always referred to the arrival of Jack Watts at Melbourne, who, you know, a really very talented youngster and uh, number one draft pick, and the Demons are really struggling at the time. So he gets thrown to the wolves a bit when he when he turns up and he's sort of set up to fail before he even gets there. And he had a good career, Jack, but, you know, uh, the pressure that must have been on him to perform from day one, whereas uh, for a lot of those guys, they'd already performed at the top level for mm. a while. Pete had played for a club called Upper Derwent uh, in the uh, bit north of New Norfolk uh, and he actually played his first senior season alongside his father who was able to protect him a bit if anyone uh, decided to rough up the young kid. And then he plays uh, four seasons at New Norfolk in the Tasmanian Footy League. So he's already hardened against men before he gets there. And I think that was a really important factor. Same again with Polly and Jezza and those guys. Was he a big Was he a big goal kicker when he was playing in those Tasmanian leagues? Yeah, he was already setting records by the time Hawthorne came on the scene. He he uh, he'd played what four or five senior seasons, and he'd kicked four centuries in in those five seasons. So he was already uh, the the young star of the competition. And there was a state carnival in nineteen sixty six, and and Pete won the, won the goal kicking in that against the likes of Victoria and all those other teams. So it was already. Um, well known that uh, there was something special about this kid from New Norfolk. Actually, Paul's called in to say he saw him play for Tasmania. Hello, Paul. G'day, mate. How are you going? Good, Pretty Paul. good. Yeah. No, it's a lingering memory of uh, seeing Peter play in, in 1966 Carnival. Uh, has been mentioned. He won the he won the leading goal kicking. He kicked 20 goals in that Carnival game, and you played against all the other all the other states in the Victorian Football Association. But my greatest memory of him as a young player, uh, he kicked nine goals on the best fullback in Australia, who was named in the All Australian team, as Peter was as well. Uh, a fellow called Brian Sarr. He was regarded as the best fullback of his time, and Peter kicked nine goals on him. And as a 20-year-old, which is an incredible feat. But I've seen Hudson play many a game. I used to go to the football all the time, and and New Norfolk relied on relied on him because uh, uh, he kicked so many goals. But I did see him kick seven in the uh, 1975 Grand Final because he uh, by this time he come after the injuries and that he he made a comeback and he he played with Gamorki. Uh, who won the premiership that year and he kicked seven goals in that grand final so every time he seemed to go out he he seemed to kick a bag um, uh, I remember he kicked many goals, I think he kicked 14 or 15 against the, the Northern Tasmanian football team um, there was a, there was a, a couple of other times he was held goalless for whatever reason um, the, the tracks used to be pretty boggy down here but it never seemed to stop him, he always seemed to kick goals against anyone. But, hey Paul can I just ask you how did Tasmanians feel about him going and playing for a Victorian club? Oh, well, well, that was a big thing in those days. Uh, we had a lot of players go over. I know you, you've mentioned, but but uh, a fellow called Brent Croswell and Royce Hart, these sort of fellas, they're only kids, and they went over and they made an impact straight away. Tasmania was a great breeding ground of good footballers, and, and initially I, I, um, there was some talk of him going to Richmond. Imagine if he went to Richmond with Royce Hart playing there and him playing there. <laughs> 
they wouldn't have got near him. Uh, well, the, well, Richmond won four flags anyway, but but he ended up at Hawthorne and and they rebuilt and um, um, and everyone sort of followed the Hawks a bit. And uh, but but Hudson, he he, yeah, it was it was when football was, um, yeah, it, it was a game. It was hard or it was tough. It's a lot different now. Paul, I'm going to drop you off there just because we're getting into another area. But your memories of Peter Hudson are incredible. Did he like enjoy playing state footy and playing for Tasmania, Dan? Yeah, great memories uh, from Peter. And uh, I interviewed a few, quite a few people from um, those days. And he, you know, he, he took real pride in representing Tassie. He represented them at, at junior level and then uh, obviously in that carnival. And then later on, yes, he played a few games for Victoria, which was the way back then. Uh, but but when he got the opportunity to play for Tasmania, he always uh, loved putting on the, the jumper with the Tasmanian logo on the front. He, he loved it. And, um, yeah, when he returned after his knee injury and and played uh, with Glenorchy because he was running a pub just down the road, um, he um, he took on coaching and he he became a whole new uh, old new person because uh, anyone who knows Pete knows he's a very placid and, and uh, gently spoken man. But he became a bit of a John Kennedy clone when he was coaching Glenorchy and uh, it worked because it took them to a premiership in 75 and then they went and won the state final as well in what's claimed to be one of the greatest games in the state's history. So uh, And he was a playing coach. So it was... Uh, it was amazing when he was able to return to Tassie and uh, and he just, from there on, he just kicked more mountains of goals. Our guest is Dan Eddy, who's the author of A Football Genius, the Peter Hudson story, and we're taking a look at Peter Hudson in profile this morning. Is that where the relationship between Hawthorne and Tasmania begin, or was it something that strengthened that relationship, Dan? Yeah, it's uh, no, that's certainly the big starting point, definitely, and quite a few Hawks have come from Tassie since. You're Rodney Ede. Uh, Hutto coached him at Glenorchy, uh, Colin Robertson, all the, the list goes, Darren Pritchard, the, the, I could name quite a few. Um, the connection's been great, but the, the opportunity to play games there as a official AFL games there was really driven by a number of key figures, including Peter Hudson in the early 2000s. Him and Hawks president Ian Dicker worked really hard to, to get one game in Tassie at Launceston there and, from there it grew and grew and then the connection became amazing and it's really helped set Hawthorne up in terms of uh, the financial investment that it's got from them and they've made it such a home fortress down there but it's also been enormous for Tassie footy in terms of um, uh, travellers to the state to go and stay down there for the weekend and watch the games and invest in the in the area and, and spend money while they're down there so it's been a really two-way thing hasn't it and, that, and Pete was that's one of the things he's really proud of was the role he played in helping to make that happen. Um, hello David. Oh good morning Trevor how are you? Well thank you. Um, look there was a story going around that one of the ministers in uh, Hawthorne put a sign outside his church that said what would you do if Jesus Christ came to Hawthorne? Someone wrote underneath it shift Peter Hudson to centre-half Ford. <laughs> I love those stories. <laughs> <laughs> and like, I mind you, I think the same ones have been done down in Geelong with Gary Ablett as well, Dan. Yeah, yeah. Well, with the Hutto one, uh, you know, you can ask twenty people, and you get told it's twenty different churches. It's amazing the the mythology around that. Uh, and every person you speak to is adamant it was their church. So I tried and tried and tried to try and get to 
to the heart of it, and there's a chapter on that uh, in the book, and it's uh, it's an amazing story. I guess above all, it just tells you the impact that Pete Pete had on football and on Hawthorne during that time. That uh, he could be seen, and Pete tells a fu- funny story around that where. He, he gets asked about that probably more than any other other thing in his career, and he says that um, uh, he, he was quite annoyed when he'd heard that uh, he was going to have to move for Jesus Christ because Jesus hadn't done one training session. <laughs> Pete had been out there trying his butt off uh, for weeks trying to get a game. Uh, our guest this morning, Dan Eddy, author of Football Genius, the Peter Hudson story. How did his career begin at Hawthorne? Did he start strongly, Dan? Um, well, he kicked four goals in his first game, which uh, most people would be happy with, but I think uh, the media had talked him up so much they were expecting him to kick 10 on debut. But uh, it was a slow start. Um, he, he's only kicking sort of 2-2-2, two, 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 and he got to round, round six, I think it was, and there was there was some commentators calling for his head, in, you know, in terms of dropping him to the reserves. He's not doing enough, and Hawthorne was struggling, and... Um, but then they played Fitzroy in, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was round seven. They played Fitzroy, who were down the bottom, and John Kennedy, um, he was work, trying to work out how to, and I interviewed John about this, he was trying to work out how to get his young gun into the game a bit more, so Hawthorne were well ahead at half time. So at half time, John told the players, push up the ground, leave Peter one out with his opponent, and uh, just direct everything to him, and let's get some confidence into him. And Pete went on to kick. Uh, I think it was seven goals for the game, and from that moment on, <coughs> football was changed forever in a way because um, that became the tactic. Peter was one out in the goal square with his opponent, and every other Hawthorne player was pushed up the field, and it became this um, really intimidating thing for fullbacks. I spoke with quite a few about them, and and they were just uh, yeah, it was quite daunting seeing this wave of players coming down and just him and Peter standing in the square on their own. And Pete was so good that he was able to get it probably seven times out of ten. So uh, that day started what became a real phenomenon. And um, after all those goals over a number of years, the VFL changed the rules and brought in the centre diamond so that uh, you couldn't push all your players up to the centre circle. Uh, to start the game, and uh, you had to start them a bit further out, spread out around the field. So you can thank Pete Hudson and John Kennedy for that change that ended up becoming the centre square that we know today. How long did it take for him to kick 100 goals in the season? There hadn't been one since 1952 with John Coleman, so the the, the 100 goal full forward had really gone the way of the dodo, and everyone thought that it was it was finished. And then Pete kicked 57 goals in his first season, which you know is a very good return, but was for him, for his standards, it was a blow-par performance. But then the next year he came out and kicked 125, I think it was. Uh, so he he broke down the damn wall. And from then on, it, uh, Doug Wade, Peter McKenna, Alex Jezelenka, and the list goes on, all started to kick 100 goals in a season. And it was uh, Peter had uh, really broken the shackles off and it just went to a whole new level after that so by his second season he's a century goal kicker and he he, he only really kicks centuries after that <laughs> um max good morning good morning uh, trevor good morning to your guest um yes uh, the great peter hudson played for my team glenwalkie in 1975 to 76 he came back from hawthorne in 77 he took us to grand finals was said earlier and he kicked um, I, I see him kick 20 goals in one game, 
against the Hobart Football Club. Now, he kicked the 20th goal on the siren. They disallowed it because they said it was kicked after the siren. So he ended up with 19, but that's not a player he was. When he came back here, if he didn't get 15 or 16 goals, he had a bad day. (laughs) (laughs) No, he was was magic. And, of course, in in that grand final in 75, if your guest remembers, uh, he did go to centre-half forward. He put himself there, not because he was getting beaten, but he gave the great uh, Trevor Sprigg, the West Australian player who played for Glenorchy also and was our previous coach, uh, he gave him the opportunity and he kicked it at 10 goals too. So there you go. Did he like sharing it around a little bit, Dan? Uh, that's the thing That's the thing with Peter. He obviously loved kicking goals and he was the main target and he knew that was his job to kick goals. But it's amazing when you go through all the newspapers and you read all the reports and the amount of times that he dished goals off, that whether by hand or foot, went to a teammate in a better position, whereas... You know, some full forwards, uh, no way. As soon as they get the ball within range, they're having a shot. But, um, yeah, there's many times where Pete could have kicked more goals in a game, but he was always known for giving three, four, five off. That didn't worry him. As long as the team won, as long as the goal was kicked by someone, he was happy. And uh, obviously most of the time the ball was directed through him, but um, he, he also knew by sharing it around with his teammates, if they were in a better position, they were going to do the same for him when he was in a better spot. Uh, Shane joins us. Hello, Shane. I remember there was a, a, a story about how he was working at the pub. This is back in, in, like in the after his knee injury, and they needed him to play, but he had a function at the pub. But and they flew him down the helicopter. Is that is that? <laughs> is that true, Dan? Yeah, it's one of the, one of the great <laughs> stories of all time. So he's he hasn't trained. He's you know he's done the knee in April nineteen seventy two. Um, he hasn't trained. He's gone all. He's missed all of the seventy two season. 73, Hawthorne are pushing for the finals, but Pete's still just working in his pub down in, in Glenorchy. And, um, and he gets a call from John Kennedy saying, are you available? And this is probably uh, maybe six weeks out from the finals. So <clears throat> John goes down to see him, train, train, like has one training session with him, realises he's uh, much more unfit than he'd realised. Um, so he gave him a, about a month-long block to get get himself some sort of fitness up. Um, he did that. He flew in. They they flew him in the day of the game. They're playing the top team, Collingwood and Hawthorne, are just outside the top uh, the top five, so they need to win their last two games to make the finals. So they fly him in to uh, uh, Tullamarine. Uh, they know the traffic to Waverley is terrible, so they decide to get him a helicopter from the airport out to uh, out to Waverley. So sure enough, he flies in like the Messiah, landing at the, at the holy at the holy site, and um, he comes out. He injures his knee in the opening few minutes, so because he, he still hasn't had it operated on, so he should have went straight off the ground. But he stays on. He kicks eight goals against four opponents. The Hawks still lose the game and <laughs> and miss the finals. And he gets in his helicopter, flies back to the airport, and flies home. They don't see him again until <laughs> the next year. Dan, this is a time when if people were a little bit good at the game, then the best thing to do would be basically to belt them. So what, if, he, if he's a big bloke, did he survive that? But did people give that a go at trying to stop him from playing well? Oh, yeah, no doubt. Yeah, no, he says many a time he'd, he'd be driving home in the car and his head would just be ringing because he'd, he'd copped it. He'd copped concussion a few times. And, um, yeah, so he... 
That was the tactic at the time. You know, you, you conveniently miss the ball and your fist ends up hitting the, the ear or the head of the bloke in front of you, and that was part of the game. But um, they tried a lot of things. I mean, in that helicopter game, they, they even turned their back on the ball and just watched him, which was a remarkable tactic in itself, just because out of desperation, I, I interviewed the bloke and he said, you know, that's, that's why I did it. I was desperate to try and stop him. So they tried every tactic under the sun, but somehow you know, majority of times that he played, he still managed to find the goals. So he just had that uncanny knack of of being able to judge the ball so well that a, and a, a fullback who may have even been quicker than him just couldn't get there because Pete had that split-second moment on him to uh, to get to the ball first. But, yeah, no, he certainly copped his fair whack. He had to be pretty courageous to play in front. Because there was that incident with Cowboy Neal with St Kilda? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's the famous one, and... There was also one in Tassie where he was knocked, oh, he was badly knocked out and he was really crook there when he was a kid. Um, but uh, the cowboy one is the one that's caught on camera and, um, yeah, it's it mean, it's that happened in the 71 grand final first quarter and Pete was on track to break the record in a season of 150 goals and he ended up kicking three to get to 150 but he just could not get that fourth one and um, sadly it's his only VFL premiership and he barely remembers playing the game, that's how much it knocked him around. So uh, it was a major hit at the time. I know Cowboy and him became good friends later on. And Pete never held a grudge against him. It was just part of what happened. But um, Cowboy admits that if it was the other way around, I don't, he doesn't know if he'd be as accommodating as Pete's been. But that's the sort of character Pete is, that he's able to forgive and forget. But, uh, yeah, now that one, yeah, it was pretty brutal stuff. It split his ear open. Uh, they had to stitch his ear back up. He was he was a mess that night. He had shocking headaches and couldn't really party on with everyone else. So, uh, yeah, it was a very different time. So with all of that list of players, he only had one um, one premiership. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, you know, the argument is if he doesn't do his knee with the list they've got, your Lee Matthews, Peter Knights, um, Michael yeah. Tuck's coming through, all these guys... Um, there's a good chance that they might have won one or two more together, but um, that was the only one they got at Hawthorne. He was able to get one at Glenorchy, thankfully, and uh, but there is there is only two premierships. Yeah, oh, he won one at Upper Derwent in his first season, so I guess he's got three premierships along the way. But in terms of VFL, uh, one of the biggest joys probably for Pete was when his son Paul wins a premiership in 1991. They yeah. become the first father-son in Hawthorne's history to win premierships, and he was able to enjoy that day more because he could. He, you know, he could see it clearly. He could remember it, whereas 71 was a real fog. Uh, lovely text. He's saying, I had the pleasure as a 14-year-old to be in the rooms prior to a game at Glenfrey Oval when Hutto kicked his 100th game against Hawthorne. Um, can you just tell us uh, firstly about that and what was his relationship like with the fans? Oh, that's one thing about Pete. He There's probably not a more approachable uh, superstar of a sport than Peter Hudson. He's... And that might be why one of the reasons why he's so loved. He's just so humble and he's so approachable and he'll never turn an autograph down or a photo. He just, and he loves talking about the game. So if uh, people stop him in the street, you know, he's, he's quite happy to, to ask them about their footy career or about their life and, and to talk about footy. So he's always very, very approachable guy. And I think the fans connected with that. He was a fair player. He didn't go around sort of belting or, whinging or any of that he just played the game and and the supporters loved him they've got some great photos there of after kicking 100 goals the crowd just cheering him off the field it was it's amazing scenes to sum up the sort of uh the love that they had for Hutto 
How, after going back to Tasmania, how did his career finish? Yeah, so he goes back to Tassie, wins that state final, um, kicks a bag of goals in 1976. The Hawks get him back under David Parkin in 1977 for this, uh, what becomes an amazing comeback season. He kicks 110 goals for the Hawks to show that he's still still got it, uh, despite the injury. Um, and then he returns to Tassie to finish out his career. He's still working in the pub there. So he um, he kicks a lazy 191 goals in 1978. And then he decides, uh, even though he's a year older, he'll kick 203, I think it was, in 1979, the first first uh, bloke at any major senior level to kick 200 goals in a season. So it's a pretty amazing end to his career. And he retired after the, they lost the grand final narrowly that year. And then he made a brief comeback in 1981 for Glenorchy and played a handful of games. I think it was three games, and he kicked 30 odd goals. So uh, he was—he could probably still play today and kick a few goals. What does he do now? Uh, he's only recently retired. I think the the recent uh, COVID situation, when they were in lockdown, that was enough to uh, pull the pin on his work. But he, he lives down in the Mornington Peninsula now. Uh, still gets back to Tassie quite regularly. Um, and uh, yeah, but he worked. Uh, he worked in administration at St Kilda and Hawthorne, and then he then he got a job at Booper Health, um, the insurance, and yeah. he was there for many many years. And that relationship with Hawthorne continued, and that's when he was able to help get some footy in the in Tasmania as well. So it all sort of played off each other. So he was almost, as he says, he wasn't unemployed from when he was about 16 through to last year when he retired. He always had a job either in football or running the pub in, in Glenorchy or, or again at Booper where he was very popular there for 20 years as well. Is he keen on the establishment of a league team in Tasmania? Oh, most definitely, yeah. He obviously, like everyone else, he realises that it needs to be financially viable um, <clears throat> and if that's possible, he's... Um, yeah, he's oh, he's he's been pushing for it for a long time and been on committees and always gets asked about it. He just wants to make sure that it's a long-term prospect, uh, not just some short-term fix. So that's his probably biggest concern. But in terms of getting more more of a AFL representation in the state, he's you know he's as passionate as any, as anyone for that. Dan, I've got so many texts coming through saying how much they've enjoyed hearing the story about Peter Hudson and they're going to pop out and get the book. So thank you very much for sharing that with us today. No, I really appreciate it. Good on you. Thanks very much, Dan Eddy. This is Overnights on ABC Radio.